our May Fund Drive. We know how difficult it is, how hard it is for many people. If you can afford it, please become a member of WBAI for $35 a year and select the face mask as a gift to you. Thank you so much. Don't tell me to stop. Tell the rain not to drop. Tell me everything I'm not. This is Liz Wright. You're listening to WBAI in New York. Welcome to City Watch at a new time and a better time to help you start your day with the latest news, interviews, and discussions about the issues that affect New York City. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and if you're new to this show or if you're tuning in for the first time, City Watch has been part of the fabric of WBAI for decades. And in recent years, we have moved around a bit. We were trying to find a comfortable slot. We've been on Saturday mornings for some time before this. And we were on Sunday nights to help you as you were driving back to the city back before the pandemic when a lot of us would spend a lot of time outside of our homes in a way. But Sunday mornings seemed like the best fit. And I'm really incredibly happy that we're now going to be in this new time slot at 10 o'clock every Sunday morning. Uh, I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. My co-host, David Brand, is off today. We alternate on weekends in this new world. And we also broadcast remotely So occasionally during the show, you might hear sirens going by. I'm broadcasting from Jackson Heights, and the wonderful engineer Sean Rhodes is in the studio to make this uh, show happen. Uh, David and I take turns each week, and eventually we hope to be back in the studio together. Also part of this show each week is Celeste Katz-Marston. She's our WBAI correspondent and my former co-host of Driving Forces on Thursdays. She's been interviewing New Yorkers about life amid COVID-19. And in a bit, you're going to hear uh, her latest dispatch. She talked for a good amount of time with U.S. Congresswoman Nydia Velazquez uh, about the Congresswoman's battle with COVID-19. She had uh, first posted this on Twitter back in March, indicating that she was displaying the symptoms. uh, And she talks very candidly with Celeste about her experience with COVID-19. Each week, we're going to continue to bring you conversations with thought leaders and policy makers, with community leaders and the movers and shakers, the people who make New York City tick, uh, and often those who make New York State tick. And that's going to be my first guest in just a few moments, New York State Assembly member uh, Deborah Glick, her first time on the show with me. Uh, well, much around us these days seems cause for concern. Whenever I can, I want to take a moment to be able to bring you more positive, uplifting conversations to make you think, to discover something new, to better understand the city and the world around you. Uh, So I want to thank you again for tuning in to WBAI. I've been with uh, the station for about two years now. I think it's about two years. Uh, And uh, I started out with this show, which is a show that I had listened to for years. Uh, I had friends who were co-hosting the show, like Becca Pham and Larry Schimmel, uh, some of the folks that you've probably listened to over the years. Uh, They have been, they were terrific in introducing me to the show, and I'm, I'm incredibly happy to be part of the WBAI family. And if you are too, I'll come back later in the show and let you know how you can show your support. So a few moments ago, I mentioned my first guest. Uh, someone who I've known for years but haven't seen in quite a while. So it is a pleasure to have her here on WBAI. And I'm talking about New York State Assembly member Deborah Glick. If you don't know much about her, here's the 411. She's a lifetime resident of New York City, lived in Greenwich Village for four decades. Her political activism began in college when she was involved in grassroots organizing. 
She's now serving her 15th term in the State Assembly, and she chairs the Committee on Higher Education, which we'll talk about. She was the first openly lesbian or gay member of the state legislature. And while in office, she's focused on issues such as civil rights, reproductive rights, health care, LGBTQ rights, and the environment, housing, social justice, all issues that are at the fore today. And personally, as a dog owner, I've long admired her work and her strong advocacy to protect animals. She has a long and accomplished record, and it is wonderful to have her here on City Watch today. Assemblymember, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jeff. It's really terrific to be with you. So it, it's been a very uh, challenging time in our city and our state and our nation. And this past week in Albany, there were a number of measures uh, that both legislative bodies passed and some that the governor then signed into law over the weekend. Talk a little about this past week and what measures were most important to you. Well, you know, I think in today's very, very challenging and tumultuous time, I would say that the bill that finally uh, officially unmasked police discipline records is probably the most important, and it was carried for the last five years by my friend uh, Danny O'Donnell from the Upper West Side. Uh, this bill was not going to see the light of day, uh, largely because of opposition from uh, police unions, and uh, it is now law, uh, since the governor did sign it, uh, and I will just say that in the past, different administrations dealt with those disciplinary records differently when there was a question of whether a police officer uh, had a history of either excessive force or some other kind of misconduct. Uh, the current administration has uh, fallen back on the protections offered by uh, 50A, uh, so it was good that we repealed it. Uh, but it hasn't always been uh, strictly adhered to. Uh, but it was something that this administration, the de Blasio administration, uh, used to shield police misconduct. Are there some issues that are still unresolved that you would like to see resolved by the end of this session? Well, you know, the session never really ends. Uh, we have a date that's sort of in June that is and and we've done a lot of the local bills that are usually done at the end of session um, reinstituting a particular county's um, motel hotel tax uh, or some other uh, school district issue uh, so to some it may seem as if we well they're finished well we're never finished we can always be called back at the call of the speaker uh, the governor can call a special session. Uh, so we are always uh, imminently uh, available. Uh, so uh, I would say that there are probably a few other uh, bills. We did have a bill that um, my colleague from the Bronx, Natalia Fernandez, had uh, uh, put forth that passed uh, that had to do with creating a private right of action if you are denied medical attention when you need it and you are in custody and you uh, have serious injury uh, or, you know, more horrifically, death, the family can sue. Uh, she has a companion piece that would uh, impose a criminal uh, responsibility. Uh, and so that's a bill I think that's very important. We have seen far too many people who have uh, died in custody because medication was medical attention or medication was not made available. Uh, and I think that uh, there are numerous stories of people who've been sent to uh, Rikers Island or who have been first when they've needed medical attention have been taken first to a police station and not uh, provided access to medical attention. So I think that's a very important bill. Um, I have a bill that I think probably isn't going to go anywhere, but I think it is important. Uh, it is a bill that would require, uh, reinstate a residency requirement for uh, police officers. Uh, I think some of the issues that we have seen over 
the last uh, decade has been about people who largely live in suburban communities and police urban centers. Uh, and I think that um, that's been part of our problem. I seem to recall, I'm going back now uh, to even my days as a reporter quite some time ago, I seem to remember issues like this being floated before. Why do you think that this is not brought to, uh, brought to a vote or, or that it could move forward, you're, this measure you're talking about? Well, I think, first of all, you have um, the police unions are very strong. And, you know, I support unions and unions' job is to support their members. But policing is a different thing than supporting somebody whose uh, job is at risk because they are, uh, you know, their budget cuts and they work in a school cafeteria. Uh, police, um, you know, have a tremendous amount of power and authority and the unions jealously guard any attempt to um, uh, restrict the residency, lots of people want their kids to go into law enforcement, and if they live in Suffolk or Nassau, they don't want that to be um, an, an obstacle. Uh, and I remember I worked for the city uh, in a, um, you know, in a, in a department that dealt with housing issues, uh, although my job was totally involved with providing services inside the agency. And um, the, uh, uh, the young women who worked for me who had children, they were required to live in the city of New York. Uh, and the argument that you can't afford uh, to find a place and live, in, you know, appropriately in the city of New York uh, isn't a sufficient argument. Uh, these young women made less money than people who, you know, were new recruits. Uh, and uh, But I think that the issue is that the, it's not just the unions, it's the fact that these are constituents for people who represent suburban communities, and they're not going to vote against uh, the wishes of their constituents. So I think it's a, it's a hard pull, but at some point, um, the city should not be policed by people who uh, are unwilling to live in the city. I mentioned in introducing you that you chair the Higher Education Committee. What do you envision that academia is going to look like this fall? And what issues might your committee take up to ensure that students can still get a quality education here in the state? You know, it's just such a, a huge and massive impact on higher education. Uh, I will say that, you know, the, the issue of providing support for higher education has had a spotty record from various executives. The best year we had in higher education was Elliot Spitzer's year. He believed in supporting higher education. He also believed that uh, in many parts of the state, uh, it was the single largest employer and the uh, most important economic driver. That's true in a lot of upstate communities. Uh, the impact that the pandemic has had is enormous. I think uh, in the end, just for this uh, semester that was lost and the need to uh, make changes and to go to online learning and to refund uh, room and board uh, to all of their students, SUNY is probably facing a billion-dollar shortfall for this term. And there's great uncertainty. Uh, many colleges have indicated that they're going to reopen and they're going to reopen under very different uh, rules. They're going to have one student in a dorm room, uh, but uh, which means that they're going to have to go out and get more housing in the immediate community. Uh, that will be a challenge uh, in many places. Uh, the, they are also saying that there won't be large lecture halls. Those courses will be online, even though students are uh, in residence. Um, but they will use those lecture halls as uh, classrooms to do, uh, you know, social distancing. Uh, 
Uh, and they'll also have to have separate area in the event that a student needs to be quarantined. So it's a huge challenge, uh, but in many places, uh, you know, there will be some schools that cannot recover from this. That's why I uh, authored a letter to our federal uh, delegation, had many, many, many of my colleagues uh, on and off the committee um, sign on asking for a second round of direct support to institutions of higher education. It is a vital, vital part of New York State's economy in a way that it isn't in many other uh, states that are that do not have as broad a, uh, a sector of, high, of, of their economy linked to higher education. And I'm glad you mentioned that about the federal letter. Senator Schumer has recently said that further delays on the next stimulus package will disproportionately hurt black Americans. I mean, at the same time, we're experiencing a disproportionate impact of the pandemic on communities of color. We're also witnessing this historic uprise that shines a light on systemic anti-black racism in our country. How do you feel the history books are going to look back at this year? Uh, you know, I I don't know that it's going to just be this year. I think this is the beginning chapter uh, of a wave of, you know, um, Reverend Barber from North Carolina is a phenomenal uh, human being, uh, and he uh, has instituted Moral Mondays, and he's visited us in Albany, uh, and he said that there have been, um, this is the, th- the third wave of reconstruction uh, and um, pointing to the 60s as the second. And I think that this is a reckoning. And I also think that we just have a more diverse population. And I think that uh, there's a tremendous amount of uh, cross-pollinization in different communities. And there is a desire uh, among most Americans to return to a sense of uh, America as a place where there is equal opportunity. Uh, That's the promise of America. It has never been realized. And I think this is a generation that is demanding that we uh, finally make that promise a reality. So uh, I'm very optimistic, but I don't think that this will this will this year will be uh, the beginning of a of another uh, wave of enlightenment in this country, but it's not the end of the the story. So we've got just a few minutes left. I mean, one of the reasons I was very happy to have you on during June is. This is Pride Month, but it's a very different Pride Month. My next guest, by the way, is going to be David Correa from Heritage of Pride, talking about how they've adjusted. As you look at this month and what, you know, normally we would be experiencing during Pride Month, you know, what goes through your mind about, you know, about uh, the state of LGBTQ rights in our country, but also what Pride Month means to you this month during this pandemic? Well, uh, we did, uh, each year we do a resolution supporting Pride Month. And this year we chose, um, both uh, Assemblymember O'Donnell and I chose to talk about a little bit more about the history, which a lot of people don't realize. Everybody sees, um, you know, it's interesting that the Stonewall Uprising was a a rebellion against unjust police raids where people's lives were disrupted. Uh, if somebody uh, in 1960 was 1969 was outed uh, as a uh, gay person, they could lose their home. Uh, they could be thrown out if they were living at home with their family. Uh, they could lose their job. Uh, and that is not yet 100% safe space for people who are gay in this country. Just this week, the um, the federal administration again took a swipe at health care, uh, this time targeted LGBT uh, access to health care. 
reinterpreting a rule that was instituted under the Obama administration. And I, I, I think that people don't realize that, you know, the police raids didn't end in 1969. And I pointed that out when we discussed the resolution um, this week in session. Uh, I reminded people that in 1970, almost a year and a half after Stonewall, the police raided a bar, an after-hours bar called the Snake Pit, and a young Argentinian man, Diego Vinales, uh, jumped out of the second floor window. He had he was on an expired student visa and thought he'd be deported. He jumped out of a window uh, in the West Village and landed on a fence and was impaled on the fence. Now, he survived. But that was a police raid in October of 1970. So I, I, I last year joined the march that was the uh, counter-march, the, the non-commercial march. I have to say that, you know, I've probably marched in about 40 pride marches. And they have successively become um, more commercial and I think more distant from what our history has been. And I understand the desire to have a celebration and a desire to show that corporate America is now on board with hiring us, but uh, at the same time, uh, they are part of a system that has not yet fully supported uh, equality for gay people of color. Uh, so I, I do think that we need to be uh, going back more to our roots. It's, I'm more comfortable in that space than, than in just a pure uh, celebratory um, effort and uh, so I you know I think that we need to remind people that it is still hard trans women are killed on the streets all the time and have few options because they're not hired uh, in most companies uh, that are happy to show their support for a diverse community when in fact they're really not. Assemblymember Glick, unfortunately, we are out of time. How can people learn more about you and your work? Well, you can follow me on Twitter at uh, Deborah uh, J. Glick. Uh, you can go to my website, uh, DebraGlick.com. Uh, and if you want to sign up for our e-blast, which um, have a lot of information, a lot of it is local, but some of it is broader, uh, or if you want to write to us and ask us to put you on a newsletter list, uh, you can contact us at 212-674-5153. Assemblymember Glick, thank you so much for being here with me today on, on City Watch. Thank you so much, Jeff. It's, uh, you know, stay safe, everybody. Thank you. You've been listening to City Watch on WBAI 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Since the pandemic began and we went into lockdown here in the city, my colleague Celeste Katz-Marston has been profiling people from all walks of life. And I, as I mentioned at the outset of the show, she recently sat down with U.S. Congresswoman Nydia Velazquez. Let's take a listen to that interview. WBAI New York, I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. The COVID-19 pandemic has affected thousands of New Yorkers. That includes Congresswoman Nydia Velasquez. She became gravely ill earlier this year and is still dealing with the aftershocks of the virus. Velasquez, a Democrat who represents parts of Brooklyn, Manhattan, and Queens, and serves on the House Financial Services Committee, spoke to WBAI about the personal and wider impacts of the virus, economic uncertainty, and the fight for greater racial equality that is sweeping the country. What has been your experience personally so far in this pandemic with, with COVID-19? Well, I personally uh, was uh, stricken by the uh, virus. I came down with uh, excruciating pain and fever. Then the next morning, I called my doctor and I told him that I couldn't smell and I didn't have any, any taste. My temperature was close to a hundred and uh, he said I believe you have coronavirus you need to isolate yourself and um, 
from that point on, I spent 14 days uh, in, in isolation, uh, dealing with the pain in my muscles, in my joints, uh, in my skin. I couldn't touch my skin. It was excruciating. So now that you're looking out at the city and you're seeing we're going to start going back to work, uh, people are going to start being out, also people out there protesting and trying to pursue a more equal society. What do you think about just seeing all these things happening at once? It is important for us to continue to do what we are doing, and that is to take every step to protect ourselves. Uh, to wear masks, but most importantly is testing because testing gives us a snapshot as to where we are, if there are any hot spots so that the city and the state could move resources and, and tackle the issue. Uh, so I've been supporting and advocating for more resources to the, to the different state. Like when we passed legislation, the HEROES Act, um, that will put a lot of money for testing, tracing, and containment. And this is linked to the economy. If we don't have certainty, uh, the heart of the, our economy is consumer spending. If consumers are not confident that we have been able to contain the virus, it doesn't matter if we say that we are going to reopen and that the restaurants will be open. If those consumers do not feel safe, they will not walk through those doors. And uh, that is why it's so important that we have a national strategy. And of course, right now, the type of strategy that has been implemented is more locally based or state based rather than having a national strategy. What do you feel uh is the effect of what we are seeing come out of the White House and out of Washington in terms of dealing with coronavirus? 110,000 people have lost their lives. I, I, I resent and I am very critical that the administration had information that we didn't share with members of Congress and that we didn't move uh, fast enough that we wasted two weeks, two precious weeks. The scientists are telling us that at least 33,000 people, 30,000 people will have saved their lives if we have moved with expeditious, expeditiously and, and we didn't do that. How do you feel about the, the state response and the, the city response as well? One of the issues that it exposed were that there were two issues that, that the pandemic exposed here in New York, but also nationally. And that is uh, the problem with the nursing homes. And, and so uh, the lack of resources, of manpower, the lack, the lack of capacity to deal with a, a pandemic among seniors in nursing homes produce a lot of debt. And, and, and that was a, a real issue that we need to address. We need to deal with the lack of infrastructure uh, in those facilities because we have to make sure that the infrastructure is put into, um, in place because we don't know what is going to happen in the fall. We don't know if we're going to be here again, and that is why it's so important. The other issue that was exposed during the pandemic is the disparity that exists in our healthcare system and economic system. So those most impacted were brown and black people. They, they died at a higher rate. And two, in terms of the economy, they were the ones losing their job. Because they cannot, uh, they have to show up. They got, and, and, and therefore, they were more vulnerable. There are a lot of people right now who uh, want to be out there, want to be out in public, want to be out in the streets, in the parks, um, talking about racial equality, talking about justice. But at the same time, obviously, 
all the concerns that you discussed about coronavirus still exist. I have participated in, in various uh, protests. So I've been there and I've been watching very uh, conscious about using protective gear, whether it's the mask, whether it's shield, face, uh, you know, covering your entire face uh, and, uh, and the use of hand sanitizer. I saw that. I saw that young people, old people, all kinds of people were wearing masks. So uh, in that sense, I had peace of mind. But let me just say this, uh, uh, Celeste. First, let me say that one thing that's so notable, uh, that was so notable about the protest in New York and maybe around the nation is seeing people of all ages and backgrounds risking their health during this pandemic because they wanted to speak out about racial injustice and police abuse. So this speaks to their passion, but I think it's also further evidence that we have reached an inflection point on these issues. This time, there truly is widespread outrage and a real demand for tangible reform. So I, I, I truly believe that this time is different. The whole nation watched in shock the killing of George Floyd in real time. That never happened before. I just cannot bring myself uh, to watch that on, on, on television. It was just so, it, it really rocked uh, the, 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 the conscience of our nation. And I believe that people this time, at this moment, are resolved that we must demand transparency, accountability, and that we bring reform when it comes to police brutality. And then what do you say to people who say, well, we should defund the police department? I hope that we take our time to do a thorough assessment as to what a police department should look like, what is the main mission of the police department, and, 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 and go from there. But as I said before, uh, the police department should not be in the business of using money and uh, spending money to buy military equipment and military arms. That is not what the police department uh, should be doing. And, and, and I hope that, yeah, when we say defund, well, take that type of money away and reinvest it in our public school system. We have 5,000 police officers working in our public school system. What a message does that send to our children? So we have to reassess all that. Nydia Velasquez represents New York in Congress. For WBAI New York, I'm Celeste Katzmarston. And you've been listening to City Watch on WBAI 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. When I had uh, Deborah Glick on just a short while ago, we talked about this being LGBTQ Pride Month. And a few Sundays from now, many of us would normally be gathering in Manhattan for the country's largest Pride March in celebration and commemoration. We'd be joined by friends and millions of others. But like most other large-scale events, as many regions are still in lockdown and only beginning to reopen, what we've come to experience, uh, the what we will come to experience this last Sunday of, uh, of June is going to be something completely different. So joining me now to talk about the annual Pride March is David Korea, Interim Executive Director and the uh, of the March organizer, Heritage of Pride. Welcome to WBAI. Hi, how are you? Thank you for having me. So I, I just mentioned Heritage of Pride. Before I ask about what will take place this month, can you just let our listeners know a little about what Heritage of Pride is? Sure, absolutely. So Heritage of Pride, also known as NYC Pride or New York City Pride, is a 501c3 nonprofit behind many of New York's LGBTQIA plus pride events, um, which span from the annual NYC Pride March uh, that goes down Fifth Avenue to other events like our Youth Pride event that takes place in Central Park. Um, we do a family movie night, 
Pride Fest, which is our street festival, and Pride Island, which is our um, three-day concert series, and many other events. So last year was the was significant attendance. You had five million spectators as we mark the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising. Talk a little then about what is going to take place this year, what people can expect. Absolutely. So last year was incredible. It was definitely a year that I personally will never forget. Um, and we saw so many people with us, uh, not just on Pride Sunday, but throughout the month. Um, this year is obviously significantly different. Uh, we have switched completely over to virtual. Um, we had uh, to make that decision was, was difficult uh, for us as an organization. Um, so we won't be lining the streets of Fifth Avenue with uh, millions of LGBTQIA plus folks and, and allies and family and friends, um, but we will still celebrate and commemorate what this is all about, what pride is all about in just a different way. I've marched for a number of years with groups and with elected officials. How do you maintain the same level of enthusiasm? Well, I think pride is in us every day. Uh, and yes, there's a heightened sense of pride in the month of June, but it is something that we carry with us all the time. Um, and I will say that I was floored by the adaptability of our community when we said that we had to switch from in-person to virtual. There were no complaints. No one came at us on social media attacking us or feeling like we made the wrong decision. Everyone said, if that's the right thing to do for the health and safety of other people, right on. And um, I think folks are going to need an outlet uh, to get together. Uh, and in a lot of ways, I think that will be a lot more accessible to folks that may not have been able to afford or get to New York City to see some of our, our events like the March. What are the themes this year, the messages you want to convey? Well, our overall theme, we try to select a theme every year at our board and our, our members get together and, and discuss what the themes are. And I think the theme this year resonates even more so now, and it was selected at the end of 2019 um, than we anticipated. The theme this year is the future is with a blank line. We always say within the organization that pride is very specific. Pride is very personal. And so that's why we wanted to leave the theme a little open. So folks can say that the future is queer, the future is black, the future is Latinx, uh, the future is trans. Um, and now the future is virtual. Um, and outside of that general theme for 2020, I think we've always, at least since I've been there and I started in 2016, um, have really tried to honor the past and give back. And I won't say give a platform. It wasn't ours to take. We're giving back the platform to those folks who started the, the pride movement, to the trans women of color, to the queer POC people of color who, who really were at the forefront of this movement. And given what you just said about you know, the origins, the Stonewall Uprising, when you look at the world around us now, how do you connect the movement that inspired Pride with the demonstrations that are going on today? Well, Pride has always been very intersectional in and, in and of itself. It is a protest inherently. That's how it started and has also become a celebration. Uh, we have a lot to be proud of and have gone, come a long way though we still have a ways to go. Um, and like I said, we've been really focused over the last few years on trying to get back to those roots and engaging with the right folks. I don't think that we ever consider ourselves at Heritage of Pride the experts. Um, so we re really lean heavily on uh, folks from the community who can help lead the conversations specific to who they represent, and who they stand up for. Um, representation really, really does matter. I'm a gay, cis, Puerto Rican man 
And I know that it matters to me when I see myself there, when I see myself represented. Um, I was really moved when Wilson Cruz reached out to us this year and said, I'd like to be a part of the NYC Pride March celebration. Um, again, as a, as a queer gay Puerto Rican man, that meant so much to me. So I can only imagine what it means for other folks, a part of the acronym, the LGBTQIA+, uh, to see themselves. And we, we work really thoughtfully uh, to try to make sure that that happens, that folks see themselves, and specifically trans women of color, since Sylvia and Marsha were right at the forefront. And we've got just about a minute or so left. It's not only about what takes place on June 28th. I understand there's other activities. Talk a little more about uh, the other events people might want to know about. Sure. So this week, keep an eye on our website, uh, nycpride.org, and our social channels. We're at NYC Pride. We will be announcing our Human Rights Conference, which is a full day of panel discussions that will take place on Thursday, June um, and then Friday, June 26th, we've already announced this. Um, we are hosting a virtual rally. The rally is the oldest event in the Pride, quote-unquote, portfolio. Um, it has existed since a month after the initial Stonewall riots in 1969, and we knew that we couldn't have a year without it. The rally is hosted by uh, trans activist and, and media personality Ashley Marie Preston, along with Brian Michael Smith, who is a trans actor and activist. And it really does touch upon the various um, issues that we're facing in the world right now, be that COVID, be that uh, racial inequality, uh, be that trans lives matter. Um, so I'm really excited to see that come together. And how can people learn more? Where should they go? Uh, they can visit us at nycpride.org. And they can follow our social handles, which are at NYC Pride on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. David Correa, Interim Executive Director of Heritage of Pride. Thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI today. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having us. So we were just talking about you know, the annual Pride March uh, that it's going virtual this year. A number of other organizations, including many that I've worked with, also have been shifting a lot of their, uh, you know, I call it their brick and mortar uh, in-person programming to on online programming to adapt to this new world. A number of the cultural and arts institutions in the city that have had to temporarily close their doors are doing this. So joining me now is Jack Klieger, President and CEO of the Museum of Jewish Heritage, a living memorial to the Holocaust. Uh, this is based in Battery Park City. Uh, the museum in recent months has been regularly presenting programs online during this time. And later today at two o'clock, the museum and other partner organizations will present a special event that is being showcased around the globe. Mr. Klieger, thanks so much for joining me here today. Good morning, Jeff. Thank you for having me. So what exactly will take place at 2 o'clock today? Um, at 2 o'clock today, we're going to be live streaming a 90-minute uh, co-production um, called We Are Here. And We Are Here is uh, a commemoration of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, but it's really a, a commemoration and a dedication to resistance, resilience, and hope. Um, it'll be a joint effort between three organizations, our own the museum, as well as um, the National Yiddish Theater Folkspina, um, that is a partner of ours already, and a new partner named uh, Sing for Hope, a cultural and arts organization designed to give music and arts to all. Uh, and, and it'll feature a number of uh, artists uh, and speakers. What? What were the origins of this event? Who came up with the idea? And what do you hope the, the message is that you send to the listeners? Well, it's interesting. Um, the event was first uh, decided by, it was recommended by our uh, chairman, Bruce Ratner, at a meeting we had shortly after the COVID epidemic pandemic uh, started. And we, we shut our doors at the, uh, at the end of 
middle of March. And in, in the beginning of April, we had a meeting because we obviously had to cancel a couple of events, particularly our um, annual gathering of Holocaust survivors on April 19th and also our annual gala uh, in uh, May. So um, we decided to go with a um, virtual version of each of these events. We did one in April for the annual gathering, and then we decided that instead of having a fundraising gala in May, or June, uh, we, we decided to produce a program, Free For All, dedicated to uh, the subjects of resistance and to resilience and to hope as a, as a, as a message to all people, our members, <coughs> people of all faiths, people in all countries, um, that we can get through this and we need to support each other and to fight uh, the uh, issues that we face, both health issues and pandemics, but also uh, fighting as, as our traditional um, mission to fight against hate and anti-Semitism and racism. <clears throat> so we started putting this production together, and this came um, before the, uh, the terrible events and the killing of George uh, Floyd and then the ongoing uh, demonstrations and rallies um, against racism and, racism and discrimination. And in the intervening um, nine weeks since we first met, we put together a fairly uh, ambitious program that has tremendous number of uh, um, artists, politicians, actors, creative people, all around the theme that was embodied by a the partisan song that was written in 1943 by a man named Hirsch Glick, who was inspired by the rebellion and the and the, the uprising in the Warsaw Ghetto by the Jews against the Nazis that lasted for six weeks. And he was in Vilna as a partisan, and he wrote this magnificent, um, inspirational song of, of strength, resilience, and hope in the face of tremendous uh, adversity. It has since become a, it became the anthem for the Jewish resistance fighters at the end of World War II and has gone on to become a significant protest song, an inspirational song for generations. And we decided uh, the Warsaw Ghetto held out until the end of May and we decided to do something commemorative that would show the continuity of that message and the fact that Sadly, it still very much applies to fighting against hate and discrimination, and that we uh, we are all together in this. I just want to mention a few of the names. Uh, I see that you'll have, as part of this 90-minute presentation, Renee Fleming, Whoopi Goldberg, Billy Joel, Dr. Ruth Westheimer, uh, Leah Salaga, Lauren Ambrose, and New York State Governor Andrew Cuomo. How much effort did it take to put this together? Well, it was a it was a collaborative effort, tremendous collaboration between the three organizations and our staffs. I can I can cite so many people, but obviously the inspiration for the idea came from Chairman Bruce Ratner, the the, the heads of the three organizations, myself. Uh, um, Zalman Lotek um, and uh, the heads of the um, and Dominic Balletta of the National Yiddish Theater Folksmina and the heads of uh, Sing for Hope, Camille Zamora and Monica Yunus all work very closely and our staffs work very closely. I really can cite the work of our head of um, marketing communications Josh Mack and Gia Pace and Mara Sonnenschein and Ari Goldstein, um, all of our staffers really chipped in. And, and one of the most uh, impressive parts of this was while we were assembling all the talent, we decided we really wanted to distribute this in such a way that it was a gathering of organizations dedicated to uh, Jewish culture, history, and education. So we reached out to organizations all around the world and in the intervening weeks, we've had over 100, almost 150 organizations throughout the United States and in like 20 countries around the world who will, who will promote and carry the broadcast to their communities. 
So we have just a few minutes left, and I just want to ask a bit about the museum itself. Like all other cultural and arts institutions in New York City, you've had to temporarily close your doors and adapt to this pandemic. How have you have adapted, and and what do you think the future holds? Well, um, we've been very we, we've been we've been closed physically, but we've been open with our communications and with our connection to our members, our community, um, on an ongoing way. Um, we have created a, a significant amount of content because if they can't come to the museum, we want to be able to come to the community. Our major focus is on remembrance, historical, and uh, education. And so we've been very aggressive in our programming for teachers and students with our curriculum of Holocaust education and anti-Semitism education, more uh, online professional training for the teachers as well as the students, and a particular increase in our programming related to um, our artifacts, um, virtual reviews of historical artifacts, our genealogy site, Jewish Hen, has been teaching people how to look up their family trees and history. Our um, um, uh, programming department has added a significant number of um, um, programs such as a six-part or seven-part lecture series by a noted Holocaust scholar Robert Jan van Pelt on um, uh, the history of Auschwitz in the year-by-year -year approach from 39 to 45. So we have seen a significant increase in our online community. When we uh, started, we were getting 100 people coming to our webinars, and we do them now Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays, and now we're getting anywhere from 1,000 to 2,000 people per event. Um, when we did the annual gathering of remembrance at the Temple Emanuel every year in the past, we had 2,500 people come. When we broadcast it in April, we had 12,000 people view it, and we expect today to have well over 100,000 people watch this program. And um, I should also note, we've got just about one minute left. I understand that you also, you personally and about a dozen others in this time have been uh, regularly calling Holocaust survivors in the city who've been isolated. Uh, can you briefly just tell me a little yeah. about how those conversations have gone? Oh yeah, they're great. We, we, we have a number of Holocaust survivors who are members of our speakers community, 36 of them, and we've each been calling at least uh, two to four a week, and uh, over the period that they've been very glad to hear from us, uh, stay connected, stay uh, communicating, and they're, they're a tremendous uh, source of strength for us, and we are glad to be able to help them and even have food delivered by our restaurant named Locks, but they are... They are all amazingly resilient and strong. They, they are unfortunately used to being isolated, but in this case, they know they have food and they have people who care about them. And um, my conversations uh, every week with a couple of them are very, very motivational. And um, as one survivor said, you know, I was there at the beginning of the war. I was there at the end of the war. I've been here at the beginning of COVID, and I'll be here at the end of it, too. So it's a, they're a strong, resilient, and as they said, they've seen worse. And speaking of resilience, the name of today's event is We Are Here, a celebration of resilience, resistance, and hope. It's live streamed at 2 o'clock today at wearehere.live. That's wearehere.live. Jack Klieger, President and CEO of the Museum of Jewish Heritage, a living memorial to the Holocaust. Thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI today. Thank you, Jeff. So I also want to thank our listeners for tuning in today at this new time. In the brief amount of time that I have left, I want to thank you again for tuning in. Next week, my colleague David Brand is going to be sitting in the anchor desk here. I mentioned also that if you want to be supportive of us, please become a BAI buddy. And it's easy to do. Here's that number, 516-620-3602, or you go online 
at give2wbai.org. It would be incredible if you could show your support at this time. You become a BAI buddy and give a sustaining contribution or a one-time contribution. Every little bit will help. Thank you so much for tuning in today and have a wonderful weekend. like the bash the mainstream media those same voices rarely offer an alternative lucky for you you found the alternative already you're tuned to it right now hi my name is reggie johnson and i'm the host of from the soundboard wbai is a listener supported commercial free radio station that loves to challenge the norms and defy them but in order to keep providing you with groundbreaking conversations and unique arts content you rely on we need your help donate by visiting give to that's the number two wbai.org or pledge right from your smartphone by texting the letters wbai two four one four 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 and thank you for your support I love New York. We love New York. We've been stuck inside our homes while our everyday heroes have been working overtime. For New York to reopen and stay open. We all need to do our part. And show that we care. Look, man. I wear a mask to protect you. You wear a mask to protect me. Let's all wear a mask to stop the spread of coronavirus and save lives. When we show up in the mask, we're showing up for each other. Show your love for New York. Because New York loves you. Once every 10 years, America mounts a census and attempts to count every single person living in the country, citizens and non-citizens, immigrants, documented and undocumented alike. This is an extremely difficult goal, even under ideal circumstances. And even as the actions of the current U.S. government has created fear and uncertainty that all but ensures that many immigrants will stay in the shadows, too terrified to risk contact with any governmental official, census takers included. However, by law, namely Title 13 of the U.S. Code, the Census Bureau cannot release any information about you, your business, or your immigration status to law enforcement. So step out of the shadows, stand up and be counted. This is a public service of WBAI Community Outreach. WBAI accepts snowmobiles. If you have a snowmobile, we want it. We also want any extra cars, trucks, SUVs, RVs, boats, and more. Any reason is a good reason to give a vehicle to WBAI. Some do it to avoid the hassles of selling. Some like to skip the costs of repairing, while others just enjoy the good feelings of giving back to their community. But no matter your reason, donating a vehicle to WBAI is a great idea. And it's easy. Here's how it works. Simply call 866-WBAI-CAR. That's 866-922-4227. Or give online at wbai.org slash donate your car. Our vehicle donor support team will arrange your free pickup. When the driver arrives to tow away your great gift, you'll receive a donation receipt. Vehicle donations have the potential to drive hundreds and sometimes even thousands of dollars to WBAI. Call 866-WBAI-CAR or visit WBAI.org slash donate your car. Bill you know 
Building Bridges, your community and labor report. From your workplace to your neighborhood, listen to the show that brings it all together. Building Bridges, your community and labor report, produced by Mimi Rosenberg and Ken Nash, bringing you news and analysis, local, national, and international. Monday nights, 7 p.m., we build bridges. to you. And while he's thanking those folks, let me take this opportunity to thank all of you, our listeners and support staff, our contributors, our interns, the volunteers, producers, and the entire crew that works countless hours to bring WBAI into your lives. Hi, this is Jerry Stiller. You are listening.